Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your two co-hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other of the two co-hosts. Do I need to say that? Is that redundant? Um, I'm the other co-host, Matt Taibbi. Yeah. Welcome. welcome. Hi, Matt. How are you? It's, I'm, uh, I'm all right. Lots of stuff going on in the world. Um, so I, much. I'm not watching the RNC. I can't do it. Oh, my God. Well, I'll be able to update you on the best parts of it. It's pretty yeah. intense. Yeah. I mean, we're going to watch. We're going to. We are going to watch together the, the finale. Right. Um, uh, but the uh, I, I just I couldn't after the DNC last week, I kind of had my. Your fall fail. When you hear this, we will have already watched the finale and it would have been great. Right. But yes. Right. We're, we're in this weird space time right. right now. Yeah. Uh, lots of other stuff going on. Obviously, um, mass protests everywhere. Uh, the Jacob Blake shooting. Um, bit of a confusing story there. I'm seeing today all sorts of conflicting reports about what actually happened. And, uh, but obviously yeah. horrible. Um, and uh, Paralyzed. He's paralyzed, which is, you know, who would have thought getting shot seven times in the back? Right. Yeah. Would paralyze someone. Yeah. I guess the miracle is that he's alive, but yeah. Wow. Right. Seven times in the back. I mean, I hate to say this, but the, the, in the annals of police mis- misconduct shootings, it's, that's not a terribly high number, seven. I mean. What, when you're that close? There have been incidents where there are 50 shots, 44 shots. Right. Uh, Amadou Diallo. But aren't they usually far? I mean, again, I just think. Not necessarily. Like that close? Yeah, we've had, a, there, there have been incidents where, where police have finished firing and reloaded. Uh, with but a, like within the distance of they could be touching the person. You know, in, in like a hallway. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, it's, you know, it's not like a competition. I do think it's different when you're literally. And I'm not saying like the other ones in the hallway were okay, but it, there's something different about it when you're like right behind them. Right. You know yeah. what I mean? So uh, the four food groups, uh, Democrats suck. The Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible? There was a lot to choose from for Democrats suck this week. I just went for something that I thought was, it's getting to the point where it's, it's so absurd that uh, we got to talk about this before it becomes an all out trend. Right. Uh, Dan is not here this week. We have our, our uh, a different producer, Reed Dunley, today. Reed, um, can we take a look at the, the story called uh, Marky Bros? So here, here's the story in, in uh, the Boston Globe. This is this hotly contested Senate race between uh, uh, Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy. Basically, this is a, a, an exact repeat of the Bernie Bro accusation. Uh, except it's coming from Kennedy this time at Markey. Kennedy's people are um, demanding that Mark Markey, quote, publicly and clearly denounce the hateful conduct and, spe- and speech of Markey supporters. Well, can I just say, as someone who's a Markey supporter, I would like to tell Joe Kennedy and his campaign to go fuck themselves. Uh, yeah, you can do that. There, that, I the, said it. Read if we could see the next story, which is uh, campaign decries what it says are Marky's toxic, dangerous online oh supporters. I fucking hate this guy. <laughs> I can't. I'm trying not to be toxic, but okay. Basically, what the, the the Kennedy campaign says is, we know that none of this is coming. None of the online uh, uh, abuse, and some of it apparently had to do with jokes about dead Kennedys. I mean, come on. There's a freaking ban called dead right. like it's you know, but that's a death threat they're considering that a death threat. well apparently there there were some they're claiming that there were some threats uh, 
mixed in there. But they're saying up front that none of this was actually coming from the Markey campaign, but it's a result of the, quote, toxic online ecosystem that he fomented. So, I mean, I just thought this was worth mentioning because this is, this is now officially a thing where um, a way to, to get at or, or to change the subject in a campaign uh, between two people who can't disagree over substantive issues is just to talk about somebody saying something mean on Twitter, even if it has nothing to do with the candidate. Uh, and journalists are very complicit in this because, uh, you know, if, if you report this story at face value, right. then, then you're, you're kind of creating this goo around the candidate uh, who supposedly has the toxic mob. And it's, it's, it's completely a matter of characterization. Like if you look at the reports about Sanders, you know, for years, it was about his toxic online following. But then if you, if you look at the K-Hive, stories yeah one after another talks about how what what a brilliant um you know strategic engagement policy she has and blah 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 right um and it's it's just infuriating as you said we saw this with the bernie thing um and as you said it's when you can't critique the person on substance so you have to make it about these like weird um Twitter only disputes. And again, it's totally selective. Like I'm a bit obsessed with this. I've documented a lot of cases of this. Nobody says anything when it's done by supporters of the person you're supporting, right? So right. no one says anything about K-Hive. No one said anything about Hillary Clinton supporter in 2016. There were two physical attacks based on the primary in 2016, both committed by men against, by Hillary men against Sanders women. And nobody cares about sexism and toxicity somehow nobody talked about either one of those so it's a totally disingenuous smear that's occasionally um regurgitated by good faith people who don't know that they're just parroting talking points um and again if you want to if you think and we are in a pandemic and you somehow think that this is the most important thing people are being mean on twitter but if you want to make that your issue fine but you need to be condemning it no matter where it happens but i just want to give really quickly an example of the toxic behavior that uh, that the Kennedy campaign uh, alleges to have to deal with. OK, so this is like the nerdiest thing. Just reading at the at Boston Magazine, there was an event. Uh, it was a uh, a star studded Broadway fundraiser that was going to happen for Joe Kennedy. It was going to be a Zoom thing, but it was shut down. OK, because of um, toxic attacks, apparently, according to the Kennedy campaign. Uh, against the people who are participating in it, right? And here, here are just some of the toxic attacks from the Marquee Bros. Okay, and and everyone, if your kids are around, then cover their ears, lock your doors, all that stuff. So here's one of them. Ready? Uh, and these are from Marquee supporters, I guess, who are writing to the performers in the star star-studded uh, event. Hi, Andrew B. Feldman. I saw that you were participating in Broadway for Joe Kennedy, and I wanted to make sure you knew that the person that Kennedy is running against is actually the author of the Green New Deal and has been fighting for youth for decades. I'm happy to talk more in DMs. Okay? That's, that's, that's an example of, of toxicity. Here's another one. Ready? This is to Harvey Firestein, another performer. Do you realize that Ed Markey supported gay and lesbian employment non-discrimination legislation in the MA in the Massachusetts State House in the late 70s? Seriously hoping that this is just an error in judgment because Ed has always been a progressive champion and not just when it's fashionable. 
it gets worse. Can't really shake my disappointment about this, Harvey Firestein. I'm a huge fan. And I'm so grateful for your work. But lending your star power to help Kennedy, a Kennedy on seat, one of the most progressive leaders in Congress, while we need to focus on beating Trump, is just saddening. Another woman wrote to Sarah Berets. I have been your biggest fan since I was about six years old. Your decision to support Joe Kennedy and to partake in this is profoundly disappointing. I mean, I don't even want to think about the PTSD that these performers were subjected to and how much (laughs) Harvey Firestein. I mean, I don't know if these guys are going to be able to recover uh, from these vicious, toxic, absolutely um, bro-ish, they're just dripping with testosterone, you know, like like these people who love Harvey Firestein um, have been fans of his forever. And they're these toxic Harvey Firestein bros are just aggressively rubbing his face in um, Ed Markey's great record Marquee on. Yeah. yeah, they're Marquee shaming. And yeah. I just don't know if this kind of aggressive what macho broish you know, boorish behavior. I don't know if anyone's going to be able to recover right. any of the performers. It can't be countenanced. Can't. Yeah, it cannot. This is the type of thing that uh, ruins people's lives. And this is why people don't come out of the closet as performers <laughs> because they're afraid of being performer bashed and bullied. I mean, it's, it's preposterous. And, it's preposterous. And, and again, the, the, the fact that anybody turns this into a news story is what, is what uh, encourages uh, the, the campaigns to keep doing this because they know they can get a couple of days mileage minimum out of this kind of stuff. Uh, journalists will bite on this. They, I know. They, they love Twitter-based stories. They love being able to delve into all this stuff. So Kennedy should, he runs us like this underdog, okay? And, and it's so pathetic. This is what his campaign said when the Boston Globe endorsed Markey over him. They said, If you are one of the globe's disproportionately white, well-off, well-educated readers, the past few decades have been pretty good for you. The status quo has delivered. Ed Markey has has done just fine. But if you are one of the hundreds of thousands of normal working people in this commonwealth, if you are black or brown, if you are an immigrant or veteran, if you are sick or struggling or suffering, you know that business as usual isn't working. Okay. I'm sorry, that's coming from the Kennedy? Yes, that's coming from the Kennedy campaign. Because Kennedy is a... Black, brown coal miner who has not been able to pay the bills or make ends meet. Um, And also, uh, what was the thing that was like? You're parasailing in Buzzards Bay and you're you're frantically checking the stock, the share price of Mercury. Yeah. Look, you got a lot of stuff on your mind, you know. Right. And if you're sick or struggling or suffering, you know who kind of noticed that? Maybe was um, Markey when he supported Medicare for All, which... Kennedy, who's younger, and by the way, I like the, the way he tried to age shame Markey. Uh, he's younger. He should be uh, more in touch with this than anyone else. Kennedy didn't even support Medicare for all until he was like pushed into it. And oh God, I wish I had this on me. He actually voted for something for Trump. He voted, he signed, you know, he voted to give Trump the right to do something. I can't remember what it was, maybe like increasing the budget. And he literally said like, oops, that was accidental. He d- couldn't even stand by it. Mm. So anyway, I think, you know what, Matt, though, I want to say something. Look, it's, it's easy for you and me to dismiss representation, I think, because we are not part of a certain uh, demographic that, that Kennedy is part of. And that is, it's really easy for you and me because we're not gingers. Right. 
<laughs> and there is a severe shortage of gingers and I, I, underrepresentation. Hardly be anything, but anyway, yeah, yeah. What did you say? No, nothing. No, oh. you're right. I'm not a ginger. I, I would, oh. be, I, I would love to be one, but I used to want to have red hair so much when I was little. So yeah. So the Ken, the thing that Kennedy suffers from is ginger phobia, and we are so we have so much non-ginger privilege that we're just blind to that. That's probably what it is. Yes, that's probably why that yeah. why the Globe didn't endorse him. Right. That and because he represents the voiceless redhead, black and brown coal miners. Multi-billionaire coal miner. Yeah. Um, what do we have for Republican side? So for Republican suck, I wanted to share this little gem. It's from uh, the RNC, and uh, the woman who's speaking is named Abby Johnson, and she is kind of a born-again, I guess. She used to work at Planned Parenthood, and this is, is what she said. Later in August, my supervisor assigned me a new quota to meet, an abortion quota. This is at Planned I was expected to sell double the abortions performed the previous year. When I pushed back, underscoring Planned Parenthood's public-facing goal of decreasing abortions, I was reprimanded and told abortion is how we make our money. But the tipping point came a month later when a physician asked me to assist with an ultrasound guided abortion. Nothing prepared me for what I saw on the screen. An unborn baby fighting back, desperate to move away from the suction. And I'll never forget what the doctor said next. Beam me up, Scotty. The last thing I saw was a spine twirling around in the mother's womb before succumbing to the force of the suction. On October 6th, I left the clinic looking back only to remember why I now advocate so passionately for life. I founded and currently run, and then there were none, a nonprofit organization that's helped nearly 600 abortion workers transition out of the industry. For most people who consider themselves pro-life, abortion is abstract. They can't even conceive of the barbarity. They don't know about the products of conception room and abortion clinics where infant corpses are pieced back together to ensure nothing remains in the mother's wombs. Or that we joked and called it the pieces of children room. You see, for me, abortion is real. I know what it sounds like. I, I know what abortion smells like. Did you know abortion even had a smell? I've been the perpetrator to these babies, to these women. And I now support President Trump because he has done more for the unborn than any other president. But Donald Trump, it's kind of neither here nor there, but he's definitely not pro-life, Donald Trump. I mean, he governs like he is, so it's kind of a moot point, but well, it just... He's changed his mind about that. He was pro-choice once. I'm pretty sure he's pro-choice. No, he's, and I, yeah, right, yes. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right, right. Or he's changed his mind about it, you're saying, to be generous? Yeah, I mean, no, he, he publicly was at one Right, point. yeah. And I'm sure he still is. Like, I don't think he, because he's not, he's not one of these, like, look, there's a lot bad about him, but he's not one, he's not particularly evangelical, um, born again uh, religious, even though he says he's a very strong, strong Christian. But um, so uh, a lot to unpack there. But first of all, beam me up, Scotty. First of all, no, she's a liar. That woman's a liar. There's no way they're like, we get money from abortion is how we make money. Um, 
especially because they're always bragging about how only 3% of their budget goes to abortion. Um, and then I really don't, I wasn't in the room, but I really doubt a, a guy, a doctor said, beam me up, Scotty. Also her description of like the twirling spine succumbing. I don't know if that even works. Um, and then the baby parts room. Uh, and then they have to put the baby back together again. And then she found find, founds a nonprofit or I don't know what it is, an organization called. And then there were none, which is like really funny because like an Agatha Christie callback anti-choice group is just like, right. Like, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. so many levels and so many layers. Uh, so, but but what I liked about that is that that didn't have to be at a Trump RNC. That could have been at any uh, RNC. That's right. Yeah. Right? That could have been. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, right, it, it was it was not particularly Trumpian at all. Right. Actually. There wasn't really nothing Trumpy about it. Right. Um, I would have been interested to see how that monologue would have come out if Trump had delivered it. He would have, I mean, I could have seen, been like, I heard about the beautiful babies, unbelievably beautiful babies. Through the tubes. I mean, his He's, narration would have been. Uh, yeah. Like He's back together. Beautiful babies. Unbelievable. I can't even I could, I, look. And then he said. It's terrible what they do to these, these little babies. It's just terrible. They, you, you'd never, you, you can't I, imagine it. I'm going to go ahead and disagree that I, that it's unimaginable that a doctor would say. Beam, beam me up, up Scotty. I, I can. What does that mean, though? Beam me up, Scotty. Like he's he's about to suck the fetus up through a tube, so he wants to beam him up, just like like Scotty in Star Trek. But beam him, beam me up, Scotty is asking for, like that would have to be if he was talking uh, from the perspective of being the wand. No, no, he's 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 personifying the 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 fetus. And oh, he's speaking for the unborn fetus. Yeah, oh, the fetus is saying, beam yeah, me up, Scotty. Yeah, I get beam it. Me up, Scotty. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because yeah. definitely if you are an abortion provider, you want to think of <laughs> the, the fetus or zygote you are removing as 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 you definitely want to personify that 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 thing. I mean, who knows what kinds of I mean, look. Right. Uh, oh my god, I'm, that's, I'm pro-choice, that's, but the, the, right. It, that is like next level gross humor that I don't even think I could I could go there. Actually. Hey, I'm an unborn child. Beam me up, Scotty. That's the that's the idea that the doctor is making fun of. Okay. Yeah, I mean that's that's like that's, so that's like Sam Kinison times Gilbert Gottfried. That's so stupid. It makes no sense. That makes no sense. <laughs> beam me up, Scotty. Says the thing that I'm about to remove. Oh no, it makes sense. Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> That, that's that's the joke right but you're right but i get that part but like <laughs> you see it is funny but scotty uh, is a bit unborn child it's uh, the unborn child who by the way uh dems are so good on this issue except one of the three religious figures at the end of the last dnc was like this woke a woke pastor who was mentioning everything right and talking about you know all the tr- intersectional things and everything and and said a lot of good things about trans lives and black lives matter and then throws in an unborn womb unborn baby in the womb or something mm-hmm. which uh was interesting uh but okay now i get it. beam me up scotty that's like so stupid though i thought he I, it's so dumb it's 
It's hardcore. Let's just put it that way. Thank you for defending the the right. Who will speak for the abortion <laughs> providing <laughs> borscht belt humor? <laughs> Star Trek based. Uh, a better line to say in that. In yeah, that let's do that. But in fact, listeners and watchers and viewers of the of uh, of useful idiots, please send us your best right. um, fetus jokes. I believe it's exit stage left. Or isn't that terrible this week? I just wanted to to talk about. Uh, I, I I now have retroactive shame for pain that I have caused uh, countless young people over the years. So the headline, this is from The Mirror, which, of course, is the, be- the world's oh, best, the best yeah. source of news uh, about anything, really. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's my go-to uh, yeah. news source. Full stops intimidate young people as they're, quote, too abrupt or angry. Uh, for the, This is obviously a British publication, so full stops means the punctuation mark we would call a period. Uh, and if we could read just the lead here. A recent study claims that people are intimidated, young people are intimidated by full stops using social media communication as they're interpreted as a sign of anger. Teenagers and those in their early 20s who are known as Generation Z because they've grown up with phones and technology, is that the reason why? Um, tend to shorten message, send shorter messages with very little punctuation. So when full stops are used in text, younger people often perceive it to be passive aggressive and a sign of irritation. Uh, according to the Telegraph, uh, Lady University's Dr. Lauren Fontaine tweeted, if you send a text message without a full stop, it's already obvious that you've concluded the message. Uh, so if you add that additional marker for completion, they will read something into it and it tends to be a falling intonation or negative tone. Then if you go down, um, there's a whole series about uh, an argument uh, between researchers uh, and a, apparently a uh, a writer tweeted, older people, do you realize that ending a sentence with a full stop comes across as sort of abrupt and unfriendly to younger people in an email chat? Genuinely curious. So I guess using all those punctuation marks, I just... It's violence. Thinking about the, the sheer quantity of, um, of, of all that punctuation, I, you know, we're talking about billions and billions of periods right so if each one of them is troubling yeah and and so the idea what but why would that be passive aggressive like it's just like curt and short that's the idea yeah i guess it's it's more informal if you're if you're doing it without the the punctuation so it's upsetting if somebody feels like they have to include the punctuation it's really serious yeah See, I feel like that, that's just aggressive. It's just aggressive. Not, not passive, passive aggressive, 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 yeah. Aggressive aggressive? Yeah. 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 So no, no, no more punctuation at all? I'm just saying then it's more convincing or more consistent in narrative. See, I think this goes well with the Marky story. Like, it, it's right. not just that they sent those tweets. Oh, we should go count the number of, of right. periods in them. Maybe they all, all those sentences might have had periods at the end. Right, too. which is double the violence. Right. I yeah. hope Harvey Firestein didn't have to read that tweet himself. I hope he only heard Imagine about it. He had to read each one of those sentences and have it come to a period and then restart the whole process until it comes to another period. And you're just waiting for the next period. Like, right. you know, it's like you're waiting for the next shoe to drop because you right. know that this is the type of person who abuses, who uses punctuation. And each time your person is being negated every time. Yeah, it really right. is. Yeah. You're being aborted. 
<laughs> That's terrible. We shouldn't laugh. At that. I, I'm sorry. Well, yeah. I mean, it depends. Look, it depends. Um, but uh, you're right. We shouldn't. We shouldn't laugh at people being triggered by periods. And oh, there's a whole other. It's, that's too much of a thing to yeah, walk into yeah. um, by people being triggered by punctuation. That's a serious thing. We shouldn't laugh at. Uh, what do we have for, uh, for, for isn't that weird? I was a little upset. I couldn't find very good penis yep. content. I couldn't find it. Um, I found some, it's not great, but this is interesting. Actually, this isn't interesting. Isn't that weird? Um, you know, we, we learned about a man who had a penis like attached onto his arm, which was kind of a big fail. Uh, but we can also learn other penis-based lessons, like the fact that, uh, as live science reports, evolution turned this fish into a penis with a heart. Here's how. Anglerfish traded their immune system for systems for spooky fusion sex, new study suggests. Um, and again, I'm reading at live science. When it comes to dating in the abysmal depths of the ocean, appearance doesn't matter much. That's fortunate for anglerfish, which resemble nightmarish fanged potatoes with a little reading lamp on top. And those are just the females. If you've never seen a male anglerfish before, you're not missing much. Measuring just a few cent centimeters long on average, male anglers are a mere fraction of their partner size and contribute a fraction of the work to their relationships. For many anglerfish species, the male's sole responsibility is to permanently latch onto an obliging mate, fuse his circulatory system with hers, then slowly allow his eyes, fins, and most of his internal organs to degenerate until he becomes what biologist Stephen Jay Gould called a penis with a heart. The man gets constant nourishment. The female gets sperm on demand. The anglerfish circle of life spins on. Fantastic. Yeah. So basically it's a, it's a fish that's, God, it's like penis hearted or what, what what's the what's the concept? you're so penis hearted you are you are a, it's like that uh paul abdul song he's a cold-hearted snake was actually originally he's a penis hearted snake look into his eyes uh yeah it's uh it's really weird looking i mean it's literally like a parasite it's right. a it's a parasite penis i like the stephen jay gold callback i me too. R.I.P. I saw him speak at Wesleyan. Very nice. Very, yeah, he was his whole thing is about um, non-directional evolution. His thing was like, it's not all natural selection towards like the ideal thing. There are a lot of contingencies and randomness. And he said, you know, in history, too, like the Battle of Gettysburg could have gone either way. It wasn't preordained or, you know, he compared evolution to the Battle of Gettysburg. Anyway, the, the big takeaway, by the way, from the uh, DNC is that um, you have no policy, um, but you talk a lot about injustice and the, uh, you know, the RNC officially is not changing its policy, right? Uh, it its platform or policy. Oh, okay. It's pretty brilliant. Yeah. And, no, uh, it's it's a, our, our platform is whatever Trump says. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 yeah it doesn't. So that's great. And then um, they also, um, Trump is a pretty good, um, uh, convention host he naturalized about five people during the convention um which i think was a first um and um also you know for all the people who were saying that bernie was too radical too much of a radical socialist he would have been killed by trump and as as friend of the show slash enemy of the show um at least of katie helper's uh personal enemy to me uh chuck todd said you know the right is gonna hammer and sickle you bernie sanders and Lo and behold, 
the RNC hammered and sickled uh, Biden and Harris. So it's less you thought that this was a safe way to go, because now Trump isn't calling the uh, Democrats a bunch of socialists, radicals who are going to defund the police. Turns out he says that no matter what. The, the comedy of, of labeling. I know it's, it gets my don't get my hopes up, Donald Trump. Stop it, getting me excited about Biden. Funny because in, when when they first named Harris the running mate, the Trump people sent out all these flyers, and it was like they couldn't quite figure out what their line of attack right. was. Right, right. And um, they they just you know they settled on Kamala Harris or uh, or Kamala Harris uh, radical in yeah. the first day or so, which is totally not who she is. No, it's not. Yeah. And, and the, the, the again, I think we've talked about this before. It's weird because Trump, uh, I think he won in 2016 in part by understanding exactly who his opponent was. Yeah. Right. Like he stressed constantly that Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush were pretty much the same person right. like, you know, politically um, or, or at least the same kind of political animal. And for them to continue to be so tone deaf about who these candidates are is I think he's relying on her being a black woman from Berkeley though I think he's like he is trying to play up that he's kind okay. of trying to fear monger um I think he I think he knows she's not that radical I think like phony is probably the, his better zinger what do you call her fake or phony oh, phony phony Kamala. yeah 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 that's but, him at his best I, I get I, yeah no for sure I I get yeah. it, but I, I I just think if you're Trump um, well, what would you do if you were Trump? Like, if I were Trump, I, w- I, w- I would be like, oh, look, it's the establishment rerunning the, the same campaign from 2016. Yeah. Changed. They haven't learned a thing. Like, that's what he was doing in 2016. Yeah. And, and it worked. Uh, he, and I don't know. It's just for yeah. reaching for these, like, ancient uh, Republican yeah. cliches about right. socialists and the Democratic Party. And it's just, it's, it's, it's weak stuff. From yeah, him, it is. You know? we really, yeah, we expected yeah. more from him. Um, yeah. The Hunter stuff, it, it's interesting. This, this, this is how Donald Trump disappoints us. Yeah, right. This is where, <laughs> no, but um, P, another segment people will love, our fans will absolutely love, um, our haters will love. Uh, it's, it's funny to see MSNBC totally lose its mind. They just like cannot understand how anyone would call out Biden's nepotism or corruption and his you know mentioned hunter um hunter biden they just don't understand it when trump has done that has himself been a nepotist and corrupt and because msnbc doesn't understand basic politics it's kind of weird because they're so smart but they don't get that it's not against trump's brand to be a nepotist and to be Corrupt. They're proud of it. Look, hey, yes. you know, it, it's it's like the it's like the bankruptcy debate with him. Well, why wouldn't I declare bankruptcy? That's the, the law right. to do it. You know, right. like, whereas the if you're a Democrat, ostent, ostensibly you're ashamed of that. Um, and the, you know, I know MSNBC is doing it. Do you think they they genuinely don't get it, or do you think that they're just I think they don't. I think they're like outraged and they just don't get how a Trump supporter couldn't care less about this stuff. Like they're also going really hard on how Mike Pompeo violated some law 
because he addressed, I guess, as, as secretary of state, you're not supposed to address a convention. But again, it's like, who do you, who I get that, like Rachel Maddow, this is something that really she's like, she's such a, a nerdy wonk. And this really gets her, you know, what's the expression gets my goat, gets her goat or whatever. But right. like, who the hell? I just love the idea of, of, of people trying to motivate the base or like win back, you know, swing voters by being like, do you know what Pompeo did? Do you know the press diplomatic history precedent he has ignored of the of the State Department or whatever? Are you kidding me? Like, yeah, this is Trump. We it, can be happy they're not having human sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, it's just so funny. They just don't know how to. They don't get it at all. At all, it's like pretty funny to watch them. I really don't. I think they don't get. They both. I think they get it on some level. They because they have the they have they're the worst of both worlds. They have utter contempt for some people who they write off as deplorables and would, I think that they would easily say like, of course, Trump people don't care about corruption. They love that about him, but they also don't really understand how that works and how like no one cares if he's a hypocrite. That is Trump's kryptonite and it's his asymmetrical warfare uh, weapon, which well, is like, yeah. But he's not, I mean, technically he's not a hypocrite because he doesn't profess to have the belief. That's what I'm saying. Which <laughs> lets him call out. And this is why I've always said that Sanders, I think against Trump was uniquely well positioned because yes, he's calling him, a, he would have called him a socialist, but he's calling Biden that anyway, via Kamala Harris. Okay. And uh, call him crazy. Sure. But the thing that he doesn't have on Sanders is he doesn't have the hypocrisy or corruption, which he has on basically anyone, but definitely on Biden. Right. Um, and he doesn't have the inconsistency. And that's something that even Sanders enemies know because they say he's stubborn or they say he hasn't changed his ideas in 30 years. And, um, you know, I'm just saying that that is something that of course this is going to come up and no, no one cares what Trump did with his own kids. When he calls out Hunter Biden, it doesn't matter because he doesn't profess to be an ethical guy. Right. Right. One last thing about the, yeah. but the, the, the Republican messaging um, Biden Harris, which I think is interesting. Uh, if you go back to last year in 2019, when he was going after the squad and telling them to go back to Africa and all or whatever yeah. it was, um, it, it was pretty clear that Trump, was planning, was preparing to run against kind of the Bernie wing yeah. of the party, I think. And I think they, in, in a weird way, um, they have not recalibrated from, from, from that mindset, right? Like they they want to be running against that. I don't know if they want to, but they, they have conditioned their followers to this idea that they're going to be running against the, like the squad. And but they're actually running against Nancy Pelosi. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And, and, and that, that disconnect, I think, is going to end up hurt, is going to end up being a, a problem for them because the messaging is going to be way off. But it's it's all again, it's almost like the worst of, of both worlds, too, because you have like Pelosi and Kamala. They are like, well, Pelosi literally right puts on a kente cloth. Right. It's actually kind of perfect because it's like the elite. um bad policies while very superficially kind of speaking about identity politics, but not helping people. Right. Uh, good stuff. All yeah, right. Good stuff. All right. Well, we have a, um, do you want to talk? talk yeah, about we are really excited to, uh, to, for this week's guest, Zephyr Teachout. Um, she is an, uh, she is an attorney 
an author and associate professor of law. And uh, she ran for governor and she did uh, in, in New York State and she lost to Governor Cuomo. But honestly, she did pretty well. She got 34% of the primary vote, which is is really impressive given that she went up against a Cuomo. She's sort of a big deal in New York politics. And she um, is a progressive and she's very anti-monopoly and she's very nerdy. And I say that in the in the best way. Her latest book is Break Em Up, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech and Big Money. The book actually touches on a lot of themes that we've talked about with other guests in the show, uh, including the author of the preface, Bernie Sanders uh, and Thomas Frank. Uh, who's another another person. So she, she goes yeah. over some ideas that are really interesting, um, talks about some things that I, I think will, will probably resonate, especially with uh, Sanders supporters, because she's very, very focused on like sort of con- concentration of financial power uh, and the sort of lack of political will to do, to do something about it. So she also was a double degree person. She earned uh, a JD at, from Duke University and at the same time, a master's in political science. Excellent. Uh, well, this should be a good, good, good conversation and uh, we're gonna yeah, talk to real you. Real overachiever. So uh, let's, let's hear what she has to say. Thank you so much for joining us. We're really honored to have you on. We've been wanting to have you on for a while. Yep. Um, I'm excited to be on. Yeah, and uh, Break Em Up, um, which is your latest book, Recovering Our Freedom from Big Ag, Big Tech, and Big Money. It's really good. Not just saying that. It's a good read. Um, And uh, I guess the question is, not to start with a boring question, but what made you decide to write this book when you did? I want to shake the shoulders of my progressive friends and tell them that we need to do so much more about taking on corporate power and not simply talking about the problem of corporate power, but like going at the root of power. And when there's so much that's exciting that's happening in progressive activism, but when it comes to like something so basic as trying to stop mergers or literally break up companies in a strategic way, moving beyond um, the moment of Occupy Wall Street, we're not doing it. We're not occupying the FTC. We're not marching in the streets. Uh, it's, uh, I know one politician who has anti-monopolist in his Twitter bio. Uh, it's not one of the core questions who is that? people ask. That's Ron Kim. Oh, Ron Kim. Yeah. Great, great yeah, guy. I great. like him. Yeah. yeah. Like it's bad strategy um, to not be doing this. And if you care about the incredible inequality, suffering and destruction of our democracy, we, we have to change how we do our politics. Do you think some of that has to do with the lobbying power of these companies? Like, in other words, if you go back to the days of Occupy, it felt like there was this tremendous amount of energy that was coming up precisely around all the issues you talk about in this book. Um, But years later now, uh, we're being told basically not not to think about those issues that there are other issues we we gotta worry about first. In the review of your book, I, the, the, you know, the, in the Times, they were talking about how you should, you might need to temper your corporate, your anti-corporate zeal heading into an election season. Um, do you think it's the companies themselves that are kind of pushing the idea that this is something we should do later, not now? Well, of course, um, that they are, and uh, but I don't think that's sufficient to understand what the issue is. Um, and I think there's different parts of the. Democratic Party, they're influenced by this in different ways. 
Um, I mean, another thing to both answer both of your questions that really impacted me is I used to go to, uh, in 2000, uh, I guess it was 2009, 2010, prior to Occupy, I went to a handful of um, uh, Tea Party rallies mm-hmm. oh, yeah. um, and sort of listened. And then I went and listened to Democratic leaders talk about the crash. And one of the things that was so striking about um, Democratic leadership uh, was the refusal to have, to be clear about who did what to whom, um, and a tendency to talk about this as a kind of a, a natural... Like a weather a event. <laughs> like, yeah, the, the, forest, the forest just chopped itself down. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody did it. <laughs> Right. Um, so, so to answer your question, Matt, I think that sort of for the corporate Dems, there is uh, uh, a really dangerous and bad for Democrats in general, and certainly bad for society, refusal to say, like, who is doing this to us? And so that was another motivation for writing the book, is saying, who is doing this to us? And then for, for, for progressive Democrats, I think some um, uh, are so profoundly anti-capitalist that to say we want to break up big companies sounds like, and it's accurate, um, I'm still in a market economy. Like the government's not making the shoes, the government's not growing the carrots. And I want to have a real conversation with progressive Democrats about that and, um, and say, okay, here's my vision. My vision is we have a market economy. We don't have a monopoly capitalism. We, we don't have the profit maximization motive. Um, but, but if you sort of, fantasize about um, saying if we get we can't even deal with these problems until we get rid of a market economy. Um, first of all, that's a truly dismal understanding of politics. It's saying we can't do anything about some pretty severe problems. It's pretty clear to me that we can do something about. And I, I guess I think that some on the left are not as engaged as I'd like to see in saying, okay, we we can have a market, and then we can nationalize some things, and we can make things be public utilities, but we don't have to just wait for um, the, the end of the existence capitalism of as we know it. Yeah. <laughs> right, the end of capitalism as we know it to address some like real suffering that's happening right now. Um, I think that's part of it. Um, I mean, what do you, what, what do you think about why this isn't happening more in the um, progressive left? Well, I mean, it- you talk a lot about it in the book. I mean, I think some of it is just that some of these problems are too complicated. But I, I was really struck by the passage toward the end where you talk about that dichotomy and you say that if you, have, if you don't have this idea that companies can be uh, wonderful or corrupt depending on, on how they're structured, then you won't have any enthusiasm for the idea of fixing them, right? Yeah. And, that, and, and I think you were talking about Michael Sandel who had, who yeah. had this dichotomy of either completely corrupt capitalism or nationalization and we're not really talking about anything in between um you know i was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit because i think that's really an interesting point yeah actually my first title for the book which which didn't sell was was well it was who will make the shoes i like that (laughs) because of conversations i was having with these amazing and like i'm so excited about um activists that i'm meeting these days um, who are really and correctly uh, angry about the current state of affairs. Um, and But say, okay, so who do you think should be making, 
what are situations where you think the government should be doing it? Um, and what are situations where the states, so that's still the government, but a different level should be doing it? What are the situations where you think locality should be doing it? And then when you are talking about the private sector, like how do you imagine that being structured? And I think a lot of the conversation is in the first half. Like this is the thing I want nationalized. I want Medicare for all. I want an expansion of the VA. <laughs> um, but I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it would be good. And I think it's missing a huge part of people's lived experience to just ignore all the little parts of life that are actually being part of life, which is consumer goods and the products that go into even the, the nationalized elements. Um, I spent a brief minute talking about the Department of Defense. So you don't get more nationalized than the Department of Defense, but you still need to break up the, the contracting industry because right now these five contractors have a stranglehold backward on the Department of Defense. So if I love the Green New Deal model, I love what Marquis and AOC laid out, but you could imagine a Green New Deal that says renewable energy and we'll just deal with five contractors. I got to tell you, that's going to end up eating itself. So you have to, even if you want nationalization in these big things, you have to deal with these gross growing forms of private government that are happening in the in the private um, private sector. So um, I, the, the, the bad news is we're in terrible shape. The good news is there's a growing progressive movement, but the progressive movement needs to fill out what its utopia is and we may right. never reach it, but you still have to have some vision. Like that's what we're going for. We're going for a more moral economy. Well, how do you, you obviously endorsed um, Bernie Sanders. You were Sanders surrogate, he endorsed you. Um, how does your view uh, and I know you're major academic and I'm sorry if I'm like dumbing this down a little, but your view of, of the world, how does that compare to Bernie Sanders view of the world versus um, Elizabeth Warren's? Because there's so much discussion about like, yeah, well, he's a, she's the realist who, who gets markets and he's the utopian, but you obviously back Bernie, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, so why Bernie and not um, uh, Warren, for instance? Not, I don't mean that on a personal level, but right. I mean, like, yeah. what kind of ideology is it that that you share with Sanders? And how does that differ from the more Warrenite um, conception of power? Yeah, like when it comes to um, particular laws that they would change in market structure, it's not actually that different. You know, like when it comes to what how you would have ag policy or how you would have um, uh, uh you know, how you would break up big tech. Um, Sanders doesn't get enough credit for being an anti-monopolist. <laughs> I, I love his um, intro, but I grew up in Vermont. I um, uh, was there in 94, um, uh, living there in 94 when he was running and protesting hospital mergers. So while he was calling for... Uh, Medicare for all, he was still recognizing the danger of concentration within the hospital industry. And um, he has been on the forefront on ag, uh, talking about how there's just this massive shift from uh, in the last 40 years from what percentage of every dollar farmers are making and right. asymmetries of power. So I, I think that um, he doesn't actually get enough credit in this area. 
Um, and when it comes to broadband, he's been amazing. Yeah. Um, and he's a deeply, I mean, he's very much a, a movement person, which is what I think we need. Um, you know, I, I think we're talking about taking on some of the most powerful uh, interests in world history with certainly the biggest data sets in world history. So, so it's going to take uh, 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 movement politics. And, and I also think that one of the things that's so unusual about Sanders is he has this ability, and it's a rhetorical ability, um, and it comes from you know years of doing the work, um, to speak both to small business owners and to labor. And I actually think that's a really important yeah. uh, joining. And I, I like I, I do think we can get get there, get if not to utopia to a lot to actually a moral economy. But I don't see how we can get there without those two joining forces. And there's very few people who can speak to both of those. Small business owners feel totally shut out of, of both parties, honestly. Um, yeah. When you talk about uh, building a moral economy, can we? and you talk about specific sectors, can we talk about ag for a minute? Because you start off the book talking about the chickenization of America. And I think that there, I think a lot of people don't understand how the concentration of power in the in in ag really dominates like small farmers and they they only have a few suppliers they can sell to and they are all forced into these arbitration contracts as, as a result of that. Can you talk about what you, what you mean by the chickenization of America and what what the solutions might be? Yeah, um, when I started writing this book, I ended up writing more about suicide and depression than yeah. I yeah, um, so expected um, because. One of the things you learn pretty quickly is the incredible levels of despair um, that cut across the country, not just in rural, um, uh, not just in rural America. Um, so chicken farmers sound and look like they're free. They buy their own chicken houses. They ostensibly make their own decisions about how to raise their chickens. Um, but in practice, if you're a chicken farmer, if you don't, if you're local distributor, which is going to be one of these big companies, the Tyson, the Pilgrims, Purdue. And there's only three, right? Yeah, right. And there's only three. And they, and they kind of, there's actually a, a recent price fixing case um, where the, the law is coming down on them, but they kind of divide up territory in mafia-like ways. Like, yeah, you get this area, I get this area. If your local distributor isn't taking your chickens, um, that million dollar loan that you took out for your chicken house uh, is coming due and you are not, uh, you're going bankrupt. Uh, so um, you need your distributor to take your chickens. So um, after Ronald Reagan and his California wrecking crew came in and just went purposefully, not just at deregulation generally, but at antitrust laws in particular, uh, these distributors started growing, first buying up other distributors. So now we have only three and then also buying up all the related industries, like buying the feed, buying the consultants, buying all the, all the ancillary industries. And so the basic rule is to be a chicken farmer, you can sell and Tyson will allow you to exist, get your chickens to market if you use their feed, their eggs, uh, their lighting, their medicine, their consultants, uh, uh, basically, every, they, they basically demand that you use everything of theirs. Otherwise, you can get cut off. That sounds pretty bad. Um, but that's not it. They also require you to sign a contract that says you can't talk to your neighbors 
and you're going to get paid a different amount every month. And the amount you're paid is going to depend on the pound of chicken you produce. But since you can't talk to your neighbors and you get paid a different amount every month, you don't actually really know what's going on. You don't know if you are producing less or more because the weather was bad, because Tyson is experimenting on you, um, because of the fact that you spoke out at a public hearing and chicken farmers will tell you stories about, and this has been well reported, um, uh, stories about retaliation for speaking out about this system. And so it leads to this um, uh, rational paranoia where you are right to feel like you are not in control of your own life and you are being spied upon and you are being treated differently and life isn't fair and incredible amounts of depression um, and a debilitating anger. Um, you know, one farmer I talked to just talked about the dreams that he has and the amount of anger he has towards the distributors. Um, and, and a real fear of speaking out politically. So this, this model is called chickenization. I got this from Chris Leonard's great book, The Meat Bracket. He's a great investigative journalist. Um, uh, by the other meat industries who are now chickenizing. So pork has gotten chickenized and beef has gotten chickenized. Basically, the distributors are like, this is a great model for us. We get to do the experimenting. We get all the data. And we can just treat these farmers like subjects. And I love the phrase, as dismal as it is, because of course, the word chicken this makes us all, it's all, right. all scared. Um, Montesquieu yeah. talks about pockets of fear as a sign of, sign of tyranny. Well, that, that, that model, that's, that's the same model that Uber has. Um, and that's the same model that Amazon has towards its sellers. And that's the same model that, that um, restaurant delivery apps are trying to build towards restaurants. <laughs> Well, and, and one point that I, I love that you made in the book, because it's so important, but I almost never hear anybody talking about it, is that it's also the model that the big tech distributors have with journalism, right? Totally. And, and, and you, you talk uh, a lot in the, the book about something that for some reason, weird reason, is like a taboo in our business, which is that we're completely subservient to a, a handful of distributors uh, and the media companies are, are constantly scrambling to figure out what the algorithms are. They are subservient. It's, it's, it's a de facto regulator that uh, decides how companies live or die. Can you, can you talk a little bit about what, what you see is what's going on with journalism and their relationship to, to tech right now? I mean, it is amazing that we allowed uh, Google and uh, Mark Zuckerberg to be basically the king of our news industry, kings of our news industry. <laughs> you would not select them, and you would not select any two people, no matter how <laughs> how goodwilled. But we've allowed these structures that are uh, will allow for two different things. One is just the death of working class journalism, working class news, right. um, because uh, and that had almost already happened when I wrote the book, and then the Daily News newsroom just uh, closed down. Working class newspapers have always relied on ads. And um, the work that those journalists do, um, supported by ads, was getting shared and getting more eyeballs than ever on Facebook, but Facebook was taking all the money. Um, and um, basically took out working class and local news across the country. And the pandemic hasn't helped because the advertising base has dried up even more. 
Um, and it is, I mean, it's, it's been totally devastating. And if that isn't enough, they are playing this king-like role where if Sheryl Sandberg gets together with Mark and says, let's, you know, let's switch up the algorithm and move to video as they did, then all the newsrooms say, oh, the king says we got to move to video because we're going to prioritize video. So they fire their print journalists and hire uh, video uh, folks. And then Zuckerberg and Sandberg say, well, we don't like that. We're going to actually suppress all news. We just want to share pictures of cats. And so then the newsroom say, what do we do now? And they start to rumble a little bit. And then Zuckerberg says, well, I'm a good king. So we're going to actually select some of you to prioritize. I mean, this to me, this Zuckerberg's solution, which was heralded as a solution, is that he was finally going to share revenue with news sources. A selected news sources that are then prioritized. This is an extraordinary move. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally crazy that we're allowing this to happen. And I mean, I, I've been thinking about like, how do we organize journalists around this? Yeah. Because because they've been weirdly silent and weirdly inevitableist and like, oh, that's the end of democracy. I guess there it goes. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. There's been almost no push. I mean, if, if you talk to kind of people who were in the business a million years ago when it was structured completely differently, some of them will complain about it a little bit, but the, if you've grown up in the way, in this new model, it, it, it's almost like people have already accepted the idea right. that this is the way it is and the way it will always be. And it's just our job to react to whatever the changes in the algorithm are or whatever. And if they say, it's, I mean, should, should, there, should there be unions? What, what's, what's, yes. the, what's the response to that? Um, well, I think publishers should march on Washington. Yeah. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> so if, and, and uh, you know, to his credit, um, Mark Thompson at the Times has spoken out, has gone to Washington to speak about it. While meanwhile, the Times is running as fast as, as, fast as, as they can away from this business model to a subscription model, which is good for the Times, but doesn't uh, rejuvenate. And, and to his credit, he's very clear about that. It doesn't do anything for the Gibson Journal uh, or right. the News. Um, so I actually think, uh, journalists have to speak up. Like, journalists are um, vitriolic when it comes to sun sunshine laws, as they should be. Now they right. say we're we're not getting involved in politics, but if you don't have sun sunshine laws, if you don't uh, respond to my requests, we are going to put that on the front page and we're going to shame you. And I think you should see a similar kind of journalist response. Um, and if journalists don't respond, it's really hard for others to then come on board and respond. So I, I also try to figure out like why has why hasn't there been more of that? It's, it's like part of it. Quiet people. Is it part of it like the, just that it's kind of wonky and wonkish and not that easy to understand? Katie, the entire point of my book is that you were not allowed to call it wonkish. I know, but I mean, but that's also why you had to write your book, right? Because like people do see it that way. I'm just, I'm one of the, I'm a, I'm a, I'm part of the, the riffraff that uh, you guys get to experiment on. I'm just kidding. But I am part, I mean, okay. it is true though. I think that there are two things. There's the inevitableist view of it. Then there's people not totally getting all of it. And then I think that there is a, like a sub genre of people who, who in like out of, their hearts may be in the right place, but they think that the way to be a good anti-racist is actually to like get Mark Zuckerberg to condemn things and not allow certain companies to um, to advertise. And that's their kind of like woke 
response to it and they don't realize that i mean i i not sound like a broken record but people are like you know want facebook or google or youtube or twitter to censor more and they think they're doing that in a like progressive way and as i always say like the most censored people are people critical of israel and especially if you're palestinian so uh but but there seems to be a disconnect uh you do not you do not want zuckerberg to be your censor in chief (laughs) he's a terrible privacy czar yeah and and you you do not want that and i think that people don't necessarily see the options that we actually can have a different model yeah um, like this is, there's nothing inevitable about this. We don't basically, we don't allow our public libraries to be funded by targeted ads. And if they did, they'd be full of, of porn and white nationalism. Right. And it'd be terrible places to go and people would be shouting at each other all the time. But right. we allow this sort of basic public um, infrastructure, which is Facebook, to be funded in this crazy way. And that is wonky. I know. I know it's a little wonky. <laughs> it's okay. We just have to be honest about it and then we can but, translate yeah. it. Right. Yes. Yeah. But I think, I actually think that, um, I, I think what you're talking about, and I think that end of the story is a really powerful end of the story on the stop hate for profit protest. Um, and uh, I did an event with um, uh, Brandy Collins, formerly of Color of Change on this. Um, oh, yeah. uh, she's she's uh, taking a leave to write a, uh, write a book. But the stop hate for profit campaign was uh, basically saying, Zuckerberg, be better. Um, and I have a whole chapter that's taking on the, the problem of boycott as a model. Yeah. But Zuckerberg would really be awesome. better. And it was as smart in terms of like organization strategy as you could imagine. It did a good job of highlighting that Zuckerberg doesn't just allow, but promotes. And I know that's hard, but chooses to pr- promote and prioritize yeah. um, uh, uh, uh racist content. So it's not just like a, even if free you were speech, a free speech model, right. it's not, not it's that. like choosing yeah. to lift it up. It's like your sidewalk chose to make, put little mics on the people who are right. saying the, the worst stuff. Um, uh, and so one is they did a good job of that. And then they got uh, over a thousand big companies. All these big companies said we're boycotting and, um, and nothing happened. And Zuckerberg said nothing was going to happen and it didn't matter. And what, what Brandy said which is right, is that that's why Congress needs to act. Like they actually prove um, uh, as, as clearly as you can prove that this begging model will not work. And while I was honestly quite critical when they launched, I actually think they did a really good job of proving that. So nobody can say just boycott Facebook now because the most powerful boycott just happened that got tons of attention cut huge companies involved and it's like mm-hmm. not a, it's not yeah. it is not going to change so I, I hope that shakes people into say okay now call chuck you know like your job is not to try to go off facebook for a few days your job is to sit outside chuck schumer's office and say why was tech not part of your anti-monopoly platform and why are you doing more about this yeah you talk a lot in the book about sort of the anti-monopolist movement, the history of it, the actual one in our past, and sort of the concept of, of re- reviving it now. Uh, we had Thomas Frank on a little while oh. ago, and he, you know, he's got a new book about the yeah. populist movement. Uh, and you know, his thesis basically was that uh, there is such a powerful propaganda reflex to to make to to, to denounce the very idea of populism as something dirty. Uh, yes. and illegitimate 
and it makes people reluctant to get involved uh, or, to, or to, to build a movement that, that sees itself that way. Um, what do you think are the obstacles maybe to building that kind of movement currently? Because Sanders seem, clearly seem to try. Yeah. Um, well, I, I uh, love Tom Frank and I am a populist. <laughs> um, and I think that book is so smart. So I don't know that I can say anything smarter than what he says about the, in the book about the obstacles. Uh, I guess what I'm trying to do is, is like just do more of the, we can all do more of the work of saying like, what are the shared experiences? And the, I mean, it's right out there in chapter one. Is like, if we can get Uber drivers and chicken farmers to march in Washington together. And I don't say that, but by showing- the, To drive, to drive. <laughs> Drive right. on tractors and uh, in Uber. Yeah, so. right. <laughs> but that, that uh, like a lot of our stories have to be stories showing the shared, um, just outrageous experience that people have. Um, that That's a big barrier. Obviously, money in politics is a huge barrier. Right. Um, well, well, that's a big question. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah. that's a big one. As we're heading into this election that's going to happen in a few months, and we've got yet another cycle where it's basically the same format, right? You have a, a, a Democrat who's trying to toe the line between collecting tons of money from corporate donors on the one hand and sounding like a person of the people on the other hand. Um, can that model continue and be successful or, 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 or do we have to just stop taking the money? Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> I mean, I, since I've run for office, I have a lot more sympathy. Um, you know, I... I uh, love the counterexamples that break through and gain a national funding base. Um, and because of that national funding base are able to win. And then there's some people like, um, and there aren't that many examples like uh, AOC, who is just a preternatural political communicator. Right. <laughs> I was like, did I pronounce that right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but, um, but the truth is, I do have sympathy for people who are running local races for a state house and are told uh, the only, you know, if you, if you only take low dollar donations, the only way to go is take low dollar donations. And if you don't only take low dollar donations, then basically, like, if you don't, you're a sellout. And I actually just, I just got to be clear. I have, like, it's really hard to get the, especially with the lack of local news, it's really hard to yeah. get the energy. So I think there's some things like you no know, corporate PAC money um, that are really, really important. I think obviously limiting the amount of money, like in New York, it's still <laughs> grotesquely high and making unilateral decisions about the amount uh, are important. Um, uh, so I, I guess I, like, I don't actually think there's a single answer on that, Matt, um, because I think that there can be a, um, like if we are going to win and I want to win, <laughs> my goal is to win and that's to do politics and politics is hard. And so it's, um, is, I think it's plausible that somebody um, is, I mean, I'm trying to think of an example of somebody who's done this, but that if it's not all low dollar contributions in a local race, I don't think you write them off. I think you look at, I mean, my question for people is always like, have they challenged power? You know, is there some evidence that when they actually are in a position of power, they challenge power? And if they haven't, they're probably not going to when they get into power. Like that, that that's a not a typical right. yeah, trajectory. trajectory. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, but I, I guess what I'm resisting is I think there can be like a a a, 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 a purity that says just totally out if there's if there's any uh, any wrinkle. And I'm I am I believe in politics, so I guess I, I don't believe in that. Absolutely. What do you think? Do you well, think there's something? No, I don't know, actually. I, and, and I guess my next question was on, on that score was, well, okay, so Sanders in, was one of the only politicians who kind of uh, got past that problem. He yeah. raised an enormous amount of money. Um, I think he was the leading fundraiser by the end. Yeah. Uh, and, and yet uh, it, it just didn't quite work out in the end. Do you have a diagnosis about what, what happened with the Sanders campaign? They didn't listen to Zephyr's op-ed. Sorry. Um, okay, but I want to go back and answer your last question. On the presidential level, there's no excuse for not going to the dollar. Mm-hmm. I guess so. I, that's, that's what I mean. It's like, once you are at the presidential level, right. you, you can you be can, low dollar. Yeah. Um, and you, it's a choice. Like it's a, it's a campaign choice not to do that. And most of the attention you get is going to be our earned media so do not make that compromise. So I actually feel pretty clear on that. No. Um, and it's just, I think it's much harder at the, um, at the state, uh, state level. I, was thinking, I guess I was thinking about a local state house sure. race that I didn't endorse in. And people, uh, people uh, okay. were asking about one contribution. I was like, no, that's fine. <laughs> um, so a diagnosis? Oh, gosh, I haven't even thought about that when I, until I was so deeply embedded in every minute of it. Mm-hmm. And then just stopped. Um, well, it looked like he was going to make it there for a minute, but the, oh it, was, uh, it was disappointing. Um, Wait, well, I, I think Zephyr's about to have a moment. No, <laughs> no, I mean, fine. I see you. I don't want to. I don't want you. I was to... thinking about what I was thinking at the time, and I, I think one thought I had at the time, but it's a little too self-serving or uh, movement-serving. Is I just don't think there's any doubt that the pandemic played a role. Um, so, um, the like anxiety and the sort of return to comfort moment, yeah. um, was a part of that. Um, and, uh, that isn't everything. And I, I don't want to, I, I am not saying if, but, uh, but for like, if there were no pandemic, then Sanders right. would have won. Cause that is not clear. Like it was always going to be a long shot, right? but, um, but that was hard. And you think it was it, it, like Sanders represented it was too risky yes. at this moment. They People were so risk averse. They wanted a return to normalcy and they thought that would be Biden. Is that it's about the, a feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I think that's that's part of it. But um, certainly not all. What did you think about the, the, the meet the media coverage of the Sanders campaign? Because it, it was. It it's really maddening. So <laughs> yeah. maddening. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. The other thought I was going to say is, you know, I don't want to be whiny about it, but it's really <laughs> maddening. <laughs> yeah. Why not? It's, yeah. it's, it's like, this is a this, safe space. <laughs> take this seriously. These are, um, and these are sort of serious solutions to serious problems. And, um, uh, the, the, framework was consistently like about outsider and um i just it's it's really really frustrating um uh to be inside it yeah and and i and and, and i thought this stuff about um i mean hey i worked for howard dean's 2000 and 
2003, 2004 wow. campaign with the beginning of the, I was the director of online organizing. Wow. And the, the hard question, they, they didn't want to do this thing, this have people have meetings without staffers there. That was the big debate because people would say things that would hurt the candidate. <laughs> so, wow. so we had this like battle royale within the campaign about like, were people allowed to have meetups without staffers because they might go outside the talking points. Wow. And, uh, and I thought that, uh, that we, what we were doing is moving to a framework where if you have clear lines, then actually the less interaction you have, the less that the, the less people will be held responsible for the candidate. Hmm. That's really um, <laughs> uh, That didn't happen. Um, and, um, and the other thing that was true then um, was that people in groups often say things that hurt candidates less than people on their own. There's just a sort of a default conservative, small C conservatism in meetups, just because everybody sort of checks in with each other. Like, is this going to help our candidate? Right. Whereas atomistic language tends to be much, uh, much more like maybe really helpful and maybe totally destructive. Um, so I, I think that uh, we should hold candidates responsible for their own um, behavior. But the uh, treatment of um, uh, outliers and or supporters. Um, and when the real examples were shown, it really was outliers. Like when you said, well, what exactly was said? Oh, like the Bernie yeah. bro, the toxic yeah, yeah, Bernie yeah. bro stuff? Oh yeah, I mean, that, it's, I mean, yeah. That was totally insufferable. It was bad science, it was bad yeah. reporting, it was bad yeah. journalism. Um, yeah, it was, it was it disingenuous. Was, I mean, it was, it was a fabricated narrative just, that yeah, then people- yeah, it wasn't true. And nobody ever condemned the stuff that happened to Sanders supporters of color, Sanders supporters who are women, all the vitriol log that lobbed at them slash us was isolated, were isolated incidents, whereas anything in the other direction were all part of a greater story that was never actually proven. Yeah, um, it was. Yeah. I mean, we were Katie and I were just talking about they're doing they're doing it with the market. Yeah, I know. Now. Yeah, we read some of the really offensive things that were said that were literally policy critiques lobbed at um, supporters of uh, of Kennedy uh, who were doing like for instance they were doing a, a benefit a Broadway thing and and the people the the cyber cyber bullying was like I'm really a fan of yours um, I would I would love it if you, you reconsidered your support like that was the that was the toxic. Well violent right. language so there's two things one is there's a lot of toxic violent language right. and i've gotten a lot everywhere of it and right. uh, don't love reliving it um, right. and that policy debates are not toxic yeah those like seems right. like really basic rules but it but um, right yeah right but this could become part of the standard political playbook now right in, in, the, in the internet age you can you it can just, it's been shown now with Sanders and maybe now with Markey that this is a fact, if you want to change the subject, you can just tell some reporters that send, right. issue a letter saying that they have toxic supporters online and suddenly that's a news story. It's a, you, you would never have been able to do that in the it's, past. Although I guess they did do it a little bit with Dean. But uh, it's also on, it's, it, there's the, the like nano micro level, but then they're even on the policy level, there's the like, how dare you critique this, um, this policy or position. In fact, my worry is that they're going to try to put Kamala in front of things as much as possible so that any criticism of said plan or position or policy 
will be like framed as sexist or and or racist. I think that having Joe Biden announce things, it'll be harder for them to try to like stifle criticism that way. Um, so I think we have that to look forward to. But um, yeah. I mean, I think this, it's not much of a, like, I, I wish we had a, a, a different nominee, but I am like all in for getting Biden elected. Yeah, I am sure. not, you know, I really do think that things can get a lot worse. And yeah. um, and that, that there is this, there was that sort of really heartbreaking moment in November 2008 where um, uh, uh, Obama basically dismantled uh, the grassroots uh, arm that helped get him elected and said, um, I don't want your opinion on policy and you're going to be an arm where we just push out news. And I was very critical of it at the time that it it was going to weaken his power. Um, It hugely weakened his power. And weirdly, we have the reverse possible situation this November. uh, if Biden gets elected, which I hope he does, which is that Biden did not have this mass grassroots of uh. <laughs> uh, uh, people who he can then shut off or right. say, who love him, who are going to say, oh, well, now he's saying to be quiet and wait, so we're going to be quiet and wait. Um, but nobody's going to wait to hear what, you know, the, like grassroots energy is not going to wait for his permission to act. Yeah. So, so um, maybe I'm being a little Pollyannish, but that is the silver lining here is like, okay. Uh, there has never been a more make me change my mind moment. <laughs> okay, this is this is our organizing challenge. Can you impact the presidency with grassroots organizing? A sitting uh, a sitting Democratic president with grassroots, grassroots organizing. Well, we're going to try. Uh, and I don't think there's going to be a lot of hesitating, criticizing by. I, I take your point, but I don't actually think people are going to slow down on, on uh, criticizing yeah. uh, Biden, even with efforts. Uh, yeah, I. That's what I meant. I, I meant like once they're in power, I'm yeah. worried that that'll be used. But but I do think actually uh, one of the I think, Matt, you're probably well, I'm probably just as much a pessimist about this actually as you are. But one of the, the slight um, rays of hope I think that exists is that when Obama came in, there was no more leftist like um, wing of the party that lost like it's not like obama beat someone who was further left right in this case obviously biden is it and um i mean part of me is like well why would why would biden move to the left now also like why would he move to the left if once he's president because uh we have nowhere else to go he's going to take us for granted but i do think like the this little thing of hope is that there was this like taste of potential actually more leftist um like power and hopefully that'll make people give people like a, the, the permission um, or the, the, the confidence in demanding more. It's, it's where the energy is. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's clearly where the energy is. So I look, I, mean, I, I treat this as a, as a poker player. It's not that it's likely to be good. It's that it could be good. Right. And so, and the odds are good enough to stay in the game. Right. So it's not, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons for uh, um, uh, bleakness. Right. But and I guess, so I am going to return this to the book, is that I guess what I want is I want to say, okay, if you are demanding something of, of, of a Biden-Harris administration, one of the things, the core things to demand is, yes, talk about policy, but you've got to talk about power. Right. So, like, 
if we're always on the on the frame of policy and gradually ceding power as these companies get more and more powerful, they can just, you know, give us $15 an hour this week and take it away next week. Yeah. So they're playing on the antitrust plane. They're playing on arbitration. They're all about hiring the best lawyers to make the worst arbitration contracts and hiring the best uh, people coming from a state AG's office to win every one of those cases. So like, that's who we're playing against. So why are we not playing on that same field? Like, let Biden hear loud and clear that we are not going to see another Monsanto Bay emergency. We've got to unwind that. And if progressives show up for farmers on Monsanto, which is like, who loves Monsanto? Who loves Bayer? Right. <laughs> that's, that's an opportunity to not just say, um, stop, but like, let's redo this thing so that you have better food and better treatment of, of workers and better treatment of farmers. Like, let's redo this thing together. That could create an alliance that is really powerful. But we've got to start doing it. And right now, like, the, the seeds are really exciting when they're there. Like, Pramila Jayapal is amazing on this stuff. And I don't think it's an accident that she's from Seattle. Like, she gets mm. power. <laughs> so um, uh, Keith Ellison is amazing on this stuff. And he's got, I think, two or three staff on antitrust. You know, these, wow. the state AGs have tiny offices, but nobody talks about corporate power as effectively as he does. So mm. it's like... There are these seeds of incredible um, power analysis people. And then there's a lot of leftists who think they talk about corporate power, but in practice aren't organizing against it. Um, as a lawyer, do, is there a lot of reimagining of antitrust law that needs to be done because of the internet age, because the markets have changed so much? Like what, what, in what ways are, is antitrust law maybe lagging behind reality. <laughs> so this is a major debate in our growing little anti-monopoly bubble. <laughs> um, the truth is that uh, our current structure gives enormous, enormous power to um, the FTC and DOJ. So that with uh, 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 aggressive FTC, they can rewrite the antitrust guidelines. And so the they actually have the power to, yes, Katie, this is wonky, but it's, it's okay. I enjoy <laughs> they that. have the power to basically effectively return to a structuralist approach, which says, we don't want a lot of mergers. And if there's a deep, if somebody sticks around for five years and is still dominating in the market, we're just going to assume they're a monopoly that needs to solve it. So there's a lot of work that this is why Biden-Harris matters so much. <laughs> That, um, that can be done. Having said that, if you take those cases to trial, um, I mean, Reagan's, Reagan's crew did a lot of damage. Um, and uh, in appointing judges, creating precedent, which just took the heart out of antitrust law, and enforcers creating habits, and Democrats have done nothing. That's not true. Maybe a, like a, a minute in the last, uh, the last minute of the Obama administration, they started to do something, but they didn't change the default way of thinking about it. So appointing judges is really important. I just think that what, like, what, if, one of the things I would be pushing in Congress is um, just undo all the bad precedents. It's like, do you remember Lily Ledbetter? Yeah. Remember Obama's first law right. was undo bad statutory interpretation. Okay, so I've got six. And we have them. Everybody agrees on them. Not everybody. Most of us agree on them. 
six bad precedents that make enforcing antitrust law harder. Just overturn them. Um, and I, you know, call it the Small Business and Worker Freedom Act. I don't know. <laughs> like, um, right. But the, doing just overturning those precedents would do an amazing amount. But then to your question about tech, um, uh, Matt, um, I, I think, yeah, like, I think that there are some things about, in particular, about um, the data that's collected um, and uh, surveillance capacity that do a few things. One is they make monopoly so much more dangerous. <laughs> if, you have, if you have Facebook acting like a little king over newspapers 30 years ago, that wouldn't be any good. But now they're a little king and they see all your metrics. And, and, and. Amazon is filing a patent right now so it can see the full supply chain of its sellers. Like the, the, the like level of surveillance means that we should be even more prophylactic in the, than in the past. And then there's some things we shouldn't collect. Like, I don't like facial recognition. I, I, I think of it like we don't allow people to harvest their uh, kidneys and sell them. Um, I think that we should say there's some things that aren't sellable. So just brief thing on this really dangerous way of thinking about this that is coming up. The property law model. You'll hear a lot of people say these big tech companies have a lot of power. So people should have property rights in their own data. Sounds awesome, right? It just doesn't do anything. Because if you have property rights, but then can contract them away. Right. Which you do when you sign up. Right? Which you do. Right. Right. <laughs> So you're like, I'm a farmer and I have property rights in my data. And now John Deere comes along and says, as a condition of using this tractor, <laughs> you will make sure I have the right to access all your data. Property law will not solve these asymmetries. So just don't, it sounds good, but it does not answer our problem. It does, doesn't actually help us. Hmm. So you have to go in and actually borrow the practice. In other yeah. words. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Anyway. Bar the practice, anti-monopoly, uh, and make some things, uh, you know, pu public. But uh, as long as, or, or bar the sale, basically. Yeah, you can use the data yourself, but you can't sell it. Mm. Sort of like your MetroCard. You can't sell it. You can right. use it. Right. You can swipe people in for free. You just can't charge them <laughs> exactly. if it's an unlimited. Exactly. Or regular, actually, too, yeah. But the reason people are going to property law is we have this sort of idea that, like, property law will give me the feeling of power again. Um, but since contract law has taken over everything, like, you can contract to anything. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't help that much. It's like rock, paper, scissors. It'll, 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 your contract law will wipe out your, your property. <laughs> yes, right. right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Excellent. Well, uh, Katie, do you have anything else? No, just uh, if you if you consider that um, the subtitle of this could have been break him up, colon, will that end racism? <laughs> you know, a nice callback oh. to well, when breaking oh, no. up the banks okay. and racism as no. if as if anyone said it would end as if it's unrelated from that. It's so related. Yeah. So we have basically had anti, we, there's a tendency to look at merger policy, even with the word merger, I know people roll their eyes or okay. antitrust, they just like, antitrust walks in the room with the word walk attached, I right. get it. <laughs> but it is, this is not racially neutral. When right. you wipe out funeral homes through merger, you mm -hmm. wipe out black owned funeral homes that have played a central role in every part of the ongoing um, civil rights movement. When you wipe out um, black-owned pharmacies through merger, right. 
or when you wipe out, as we are allowing to happen right now, 40 to 50% of Black-owned businesses right now, because the CARES Act gave a bazooka to big white money and gave nothing to small businesses and small and uh, and uh, people of color are over, overrepresented in owning small businesses. That was not a racially neutral policy. Um, and so it's like one of the things I do in the book is say, okay, so imagine the civil rights movement happening now. Who are the independent car owners? Who are the independent pharmacists? Who are the independent um, uh, um, uh, black owned business owners? Who would have supported it because it's not SCI, which is now the conglomerate that owns right. the funeral home industry, um, and let alone the destruction of black newspapers through Facebook, by Facebook and Google. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And here's uh, a book I want to buy. It. The book is really, I, I really like it. Yeah. Um, I think it's kind of, it, it's, it's a great book for people who want to dig into the more specific ways they, they might want to think about changing the world as opposed to the, the general. I think, I, yeah. I think it's, it's really interesting and different from some other things that are on. And you won't feel guilty because it's not going to tell you to do pointless boycotts that, uh, or refrain from using something that won't have an impact anyway. No, you can buy it on Amazon. Yeah. So that was uh, Zephyr Teacher. Yeah, Zephyr Teacher. That was great. Uh, I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, you know, we should have asked her, what's she going to run for next? I know, it's true. What is she going to run for next? Should we Facebook. Yeah, yeah. What do you think? Well, first of all, I think if Biden wins, there's a possibility that she'll end up. Senator of Delaware. Oh, no, that's that's not a thing. Okay. No. I bet she would. I'll bet she is. I wouldn't be surprised if she ended up and ended up in the DOJ antitrust division. Yeah, J- Biden, you're on notice. If if you don't put her there, it's going to be right. a problem. We should start talking about that that topic, like who the potential cabinet type. We should start are. stacking his uh, cabinet. Yeah, I could, I could see her in in the DOJ somewhere uh, for sure. Uh, or you know, she she could definitely another. Like, candidate to return to Congress. You seemed to hint at that. Yeah. So she'd be great. Yeah, I think great. she's, uh, she was really outspoken in defense of, of, uh, of Bernie this year in, in ways that I think um, some other politicians uh, weren't courageous enough, yeah. to do, which I think was really important. And the book, the book is cool. I, I, it I, is good. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it has a list of bad companies. Like it, it's also pretty relatable. She swears in it. Like it, you know, I think there's, there's, it, it's, it's a, it's a readable book I, that I, I'm pretty sure she actually wrote. So that's yeah, no, that's, she did. Yeah, that's a cool yeah. Book. It's a book. It's a di. It's like part diagnosis, part manual. Yeah, and the big thesis is kind of like we have to break them up and regulate at the same time. Right, and which is not really anything different than what Occupy was saying or what. Right. Bernie was saying in 2016, it's just that that message has been kind of diluted um, yeah. on the Democratic side. Uh, anyway, that was cool. Right. That was great. Uh, yeah. Check out the book. Um, uh, subscribe to Useful Idiots. Um, like us, rate us, review us. Oh, I don't have my mug with me. I have another mug, but I got the get the merch, guys. You got to get the merch. Right. And if you're thinking about watching or listening to the Axe Files, drink bleach instead. Yeah. It could help you with your COVID. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it kills you first and one step. Yeah. So to speak. All right. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see you next week. See you the next show. Yes. See you soon. Bye. <laughs>
the Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.